Welcome to the February 2012 Respiratory Care Podcast. This is Dean Hess, editor of the journal, along with Sarah Forge. Sarah, let's get started with our first paper. Preventive use of non-invasive ventilation after extubation, a prospective multicenter randomized controlled trial, is by Sue and colleagues. They concluded a prospective multicenter randomized controlled study involving patients on mechanical ventilation for greater than 48 hours who tolerated a two-hour spontaneous breathing trial and were subsequently extubated. The patients were randomized to NIV or standard medical therapy. Reintubation rate within 72 hours was the primary outcome measure. Multivariable logistic regression analysis was used to determine predictors for extubation failure. There were 406 patients randomized to either NIV or standard medical therapy. The two groups had similar baseline clinical characteristics. There were no differences in extubation failure, ICU mortality, or hospital mortality. Cardiac failure was a more common cause of extubation failure in the control group than in the NIV group. There was no difference in rapid shallow breathing index in extubation failure patients between the control group and the NIV group. When using data from all patients, the Apache 2 scores, maximal inspiratory pressure, and rapid shallow breathing index were predictors of extubation failure. Abundant secretions was the most common reason for extubation failure. The authors concluded that preventive use of NIV after extubation in patients who passed a spontaneous breathing trial did not show benefits in decreasing extubation failure or mortality rate. Although it is being used increasingly, the effectiveness of NIV in preventing post-extubation respiratory failure is controversial. Sue et al. conducted a prospective multicenter randomized controlled trial in patients who tolerated a two-hour spontaneous breathing trial and were subsequently extubated. Patients were randomized to post-extubation NIV or standard medical therapy. They found that preventive use of NIV after extubation in patients who passed a spontaneous breathing trial did not show benefits in decreasing extubation failure rate or mortality rate. However, this study differs from prior studies in that the authors did not select patients according to the risk of post-extubation respiratory failure. As pointed out by Figueroa Cassis, NIV has a role in the prevention of post-extubation respiratory failure in patients at risk for extubation failure, but not when it is used routinely in all patients. Next, we have the paper, A Randomized Trial of Non-Invasive Positive End Expiratory Pressure in Patients with Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome and Hypoxemic Respiratory Failure by Anjos and colleagues. In this study, the authors evaluated the physiologic effects of different levels of non-invasive PEEP in hypoxemic AIDS patients. 30 AIDS patients with acute hypoxemic respiratory failure received a randomized sequence of non-invasive PEEP at 5, 10, or 15 centimeters water for 20 minutes. PEEP was provided through a face mask with pressure support ventilation of 5 centimeters water and an FiO2 of 1. Patients were allowed to breathe spontaneously for a 20-minute washout period between each PEEP trial. Arterial blood gases and clinical variables were recorded after each PEEP treatment. The results indicate that oxygenation improves linearly with increasing levels of PEEP. 
However, oxygenation levels were similar regardless of the first PEEP level administered, and only the subgroup that received an initial treatment of the lowest level of PEEP showed further improvements in oxygenation when higher PEEP levels were subsequently applied. The PaCO2 also increased in response to PEEP elevation, especially with the highest level of PEEP. Pressure support of 5 cm water was associated with significant and consistent improvements in the subjective sensations of dyspnea and respiratory rate reported by patients treated with any level of PEEP. The authors concluded that AIDS patients with hypoxemic respiratory failure improve oxygenation in response to a progressive sequential elevation of PEEP. However, corresponding elevations in PaCO2 limit the recommended level of PEEP to 10 cm water. Pressure support 5 cm water promotes an improvement in the subjective sensation of dyspnea regardless of the level of PEEP employed. AIDS is a pandemic disease commonly associated with respiratory infections, hypoxemia, and death. Anjos et al. conducted a randomized trial of non-invasive PEEP in patients with AIDS and hypoxemic respiratory failure. They found that in this patient population, there is an improvement in oxygenation to a progressive sequential increase in PEEP up to 15 centimeters of water. However, corresponding elevations in PCO2 limit the recommended level of PEEP to 10 centimeters of water. Pressure support ventilation of 15 centimeters of water promoted an improvement in the subjective sensation of dyspnea regardless of the PEEP level employed. As Maida and Lipinski state in their editorial, the results of this study suggest that a pressure support of 5 centimeters of water in this patient population may reduce dyspnea and higher levels of PEEP should be avoided to minimize the risk of hypercapnia. A randomized trial of conventional chest physical therapy versus high-frequency chest wall compressions in intubated and non-intubated adults is by Klingscale et al. This was a single-center randomized trial among hospitalized intubated and non-intubated patients comparing conventional CPT and high-frequency chest wall compression. The primary outcome measure was hospital stay. 280 patients were randomly assigned to receive conventional CPT or high-frequency chest wall compression. The average hospital stay was 12.5 days for patients randomized to conventional CPT and 13 days for patients randomized to high-frequency chest wall compression. Patient comfort was assessed using a visual analog scale and was significantly greater for patients randomized to conventional CPT compared to high-frequency chest wall compression. The trend for time until radiographic resolution of a low-bar atelectasis was less for conventional CPT compared to high-frequency chest wall compression. All other secondary outcomes, including hospital mortality and nosocomial pneumonia, were similar for both treatment groups. The authors concluded that, because this study was inadequately powered for the primary outcome of interest, they cannot make recommendations on the preferential use of high-frequency chest wall compressions or conventional CPT for intubated and non-intubated adult patients. 
ClinkScale et al. compared the effectiveness of conventional CPT to high-frequency chest wall compression applied via a vibratory vest. Unfortunately, this study was underpowered for the primary outcome of interest, and hence we cannot make recommendations on the preferential use of high-frequency chest wall compression or conventional CPT for intubated and non-intubated adult patients. As pointed out by N. Tempanopoulos, for several reasons, this study does not provide us the much-needed evidence for optimal airway clearance therapy for hospitalized patients. Although this study failed to show important differences between conventional CPT and high-frequency chest wall compression, what remains unclear is whether either therapy results in improved patient outcomes. Next is the paper by Diazabad et al. Sleep disordered breathing may be underrecognized in patients who wean from prolonged mechanical ventilation. They conducted a retrospective chart review of patients receiving prolonged mechanical ventilation who had inpatient polysomnography between January 2007 and May 2010. The main outcome measures included the frequency of sleep disordered breathing and tracheostomy decannulation. Nineteen patients were studied. 18 patients demonstrated sleep disordered breathing as evidenced by obstructive sleep apnea with a median respiratory disturbance index of 24.2 events per hour. 14 patients underwent successful positive airway pressure titration with improvement in the median respiratory disturbance index to 0.9 events per hour. 17 patients were decannulated without adverse event. The authors concluded that there may be a high prevalence of unrecognized sleep disordered breathing in patients who are candidates for decannulation after weaning from prolonged mechanical ventilation. The prevalence of sleep disordered breathing in patients receiving prolonged mechanical ventilation is unknown. The aim of the study by Diaz Abad et al. was to assess the frequency of sleep disorder breathing in patients admitted to a long-term acute care hospital who weaned from prolonged mechanical ventilation. They report a high prevalence of unrecognized sleep disorder breathing in patients who are candidates for decannulation after weaning from prolonged mechanical ventilation. As Johnson & Johnson suggests in their editorial, Further studies are needed to assess the incidence of sleep disorder breathing in ventilator-dependent patients and to determine whether optimal management in this patient population improves outcomes. Adherence to CPAP in patients with obstructive sleep apnea in a Chinese population is by Wang and colleagues. The purpose of this study was to assess the adherence to CPAP therapy of Chinese patients with obstructive sleep apnea. 210 patients diagnosed with OSA and who had a CPAP titration trial were enrolled in this study. Patients were interviewed by telephone and were asked to assess their CPAP use time. Those who said their CPAP use time was less than 4 hours per day for 70% of the nights per week were questioned about their reasons for non-adherence. 193 patients participated in the survey. At the time of the interview, 100 of 193 patients were still using CPAP. 29 of 193 patients had abandoned CPAP after using it for a period, and 64 of 193 patients had never commenced therapy after titration. 
The most common reason cited by the patients for the poor adherence were that they were not able to acclimate to the CPAP during the titration night, they didn't perceive the need or the benefits of the treatment, or found it troublesome to use CPAP every night. The authors concluded that CPAP adherence is low in Tianjin, China. Only half of the patients remained adherent to treatment, and the other half of the patients either never initiated treatment or had abandoned CPAP use. Wang et al. report on the adherence to CPAP in patients with OSA in a Chinese population. Only half of the patients remained adherent to the treatment, and the other half either never initiated the treatment or abandoned use of CPAP. To improve CPAP adherence, clinicians should make the CPAP titration a comfortable experience for these patients. It is also important to provide patients education and support about CPAP use in the follow-up visits. Next, we have the paper, Influence of Obstructive Sleep Apnea on Fatty Liver Disease, Role of Chronic Intermittent Hypoxia by Turkey and colleagues. The aim of this study was to evaluate the influence of chronic intermittent hypoxemia and OSA-related parameters to the severity of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. They examined the liver function tests and ultrasonographic data of liver as well as markers of OSA severity. Fatty liver disease was diagnosed in 71 subjects, group 1, and the remaining 35 subjects were taken as controls, or group 2. The prevalence of OSA was 71.2% versus 35.7% for group 1 and 2, respectively. As non-alcoholic fatty liver disease severity increased from the mild to severe form, mean apnea hypopnea index and oxygen desaturation index values also increased significantly. Multivariate analysis showed that AHI, oxygen desaturation index, lowest desaturation values, and percentage of sleep duration with SpO2 less than 90% were independent predictors of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease after adjustment for BMI, weight, and insulin resistance. Furthermore, the most correlated parameter for the severity of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease was the duration of hypoxia during sleep. The influence of chronic intermittent hypoxemia and OSA on non-alcoholic fatty liver disease was investigated by Turkey et al. The duration of hypoxia during sleep was the parameter most correlated with the severity of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. The authors concluded that the prevalence of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease was higher in patients with severe OSA, suggesting a role for nocturnal hypoxemia in the pathogenesis of fatty liver disease. Effectiveness of bacterial disinfectants on surfaces of mechanical ventilator systems is by Sui and colleagues. This study investigates bacterial contamination rate on surfaces of mechanical ventilator systems and bedside equipment. Surface swab sampling was conducted on ventilator systems and patient bedside equipment for detection of bacterial contamination. Surfaces of ventilator systems, such as face plates, Y-pieces, and water traps, were swab sampled at 0.5, 8, and 24 hours after initial disinfection using a solution containing 0.5% sodium hychloride and pasteurization. 
The 75% alcohol aerosol was sprayed on the surfaces of faceplates, Y-pieces, and water traps on ventilator systems at 24 hours after initial disinfection, and then bacterial levels on the surfaces were evaluated. Detection rates of Staphylococcus aureus were measured on the handrails of mechanical ventilators at 64.7%. Y pieces of breathing circuits at 86.7% and resuscitators at 60%. Pseudomonas aeruginosa was identified on the surface of Y pieces at 6.7%, water traps at 13.3%, and on suction systems at 6.7%, and resuscitators at 13.3%. The positive rate for total bacterial count was increased on the surfaces of face plates. Y pieces and water traps at 8 hour following disinfection with the 0.5% sodium hychloride solution and pasteurization. Concentrations of Staphylococcus aureus on surfaces decreased following treatment with 75% alcohol. However, considerable Pseudomonas aeruginosa growth on water trap surfaces was observed after treatment with 75% alcohol. The authors concluded that the surfaces of ventilator systems, including faceplates, Y-pieces, and water traps, must be disinfected at least every eight hours to control bacterial growth. Disinfection using 75% alcohol spray with air drying effectively decreased Staphylococcus aureus on ventilator system surfaces. Suetol evaluated the effectiveness of bacterial disinfectants on surfaces of mechanical ventilator systems. They found that the surfaces of ventilator systems, including face plates, Y pieces, and water traps, must be disinfected frequently to control bacterial growth. Disinfection using 75% alcohol spray with air drying effectively decreased Staphylococcus aureus on ventilator system surfaces. Whether this practice translates to a reduction in nosocomial infections is yet to be determined. Evaluation of the inspiratory pressure using a digital vacuometer in mechanically ventilated patients. Analysis of the time to achieve the inspiratory peak is by de Souza and colleagues. The objective of this study was to measure the inspiratory pressure in mechanically ventilated patients suitable for weaning to determine the point at which PI max is achieved and analyze factors associated with PI max values. Measurement of PI max was accomplished with a digital vacuometer in a unidirectional valve that only allows exhalation. All patients were on mechanical ventilation and met the criteria recommended by the ATS-ERS to undergo a weaning trial. 84 of the 87 enrolled patients completed the test. No patients reached the PI max in the first 20 seconds of observation. PI max was achieved between 20 and 40 seconds in 12 patients and between 40 and 60 seconds in 72 cases. In a multivariate analysis, only age and P0.1 were significantly associated with the values of PI max. The authors concluded that the majority of patients reached the maximal inspiratory pressure peak between 40 and 60 seconds. Older patients were found to have lower PI max values, whereas higher values for P0.1 strongly correlated with higher PI max values.
PI max is sometimes measured in the process of patient evaluation during liberation from mechanical ventilation. The use of a digital pressure gauge and the time to achieve the inspiratory peak pressure was evaluated by DeSousa et al. They found that the majority of patients reached the maximal PI max between 40 and 60 seconds. Further studies are needed to define the clinical importance of this study, in particular the role of PI max in determining when patients can be liberated from the ventilator and the importance of weakness in patients who cannot be liberated. Next, we have the paper, Influence of Family Caregiver Caring Behavior on COPD Patient Self-Care Behavior in Taiwan by Wong and colleagues. This study aimed to investigate relationships between self-management and the caregiver burden and influence of family caregivers' caring behavior on COPD patients' self-care behavior. In a cross-sectional study conducted between March 2007 and January 2008, 192 pairs of COPD patients and their primary family caregivers were recruited to answer questionnaires measuring COPD characteristics and COPD knowledge, functional status, health benefits, self-efficacy and self-care, and caring behavior and caregiver response. All questionnaires were shown to have acceptable validity and reliability. Patients' ages, scores and health belief, self-efficacy and disease-related knowledge were shown to correlate with their self-care behavior. Patients' self-care behavior was negatively correlated with family caregivers' caring behavior, but positively with caring duration of family caregiver caring behavior. Patients with a spouse as caregiver exhibited higher self-care ability than patients not married to their caregivers. However, patients' self-care behavior decreased with higher family caregiver COPD knowledge and caring behavior, and patients regularly taking medication exhibited low self-care scores. The authors concluded that family caregivers' caring behavior had a partial negative effect on COPD patients' self-care behavior. COPD becomes a long-term burden on family members who serve as day-to-day -day caregivers. Wang et al. evaluated the influence of family caregiver caring behavior on patients' self-care behavior. Patients' self-care behavior was negatively correlated with family caregivers' caring behavior, but positively with duration of family caregiver caring behavior. The authors reached the interesting conclusion that family caregivers' caring behavior had a partial negative effect on COPD patients' self-care behavior. Because this study was conducted in Taiwan, it is unknown whether similar results would be found in other cultures around the world. Our final original research paper this month is Effects of Inhaled Nitric Oxide on Oxidative Stress and Histopathological and Inflammatory Lung Injury in a Saline Lavaged Rabbit Model of an Acute Lung Injury by Fioretto and colleagues. The objective of this study was to analyze the effects of inhaled nitric oxide on oxygenation, oxidative stress, inflammatory and histopathological lung injury in a rabbit model of acute lung injury. 40 rabbits were instrumented and ventilated on an FiO2 of 1. ALI was induced by tracheal infusion of warm saline and lung oxidative stress was assessed by total antioxidant performance assay. 
Animals were assigned to a group, and a tidal volume of 6 milliliters per kilogram and PEEP of 5 centimeters water, who did not receive nitric oxide. A group with ALI who received a tidal volume of 6 milliliters per kilogram and PEEP of 10 centimeters water and did not receive nitric oxide. And a group with ALI who received a tidal volume of 6 milliliters per kilogram and PEEP of 10 centimeters water with inhaled nitric oxide at 5 parts per million. Ten non-instrumented animals served as healthy controls. After lung injury, the instrumented groups were worse than the control groups for PaO2. The group that received inhaled nitric oxide showed decreased lung inflammation by leukocyte count in lung lavage fluid, decreased histopathological injury score, and better lung protection against oxidative injury than the group that did not receive inhaled nitric oxide. The authors concluded that inhaled nitric oxide attenuates oxidative stress and histopathological and inflammatory lung injury in a saline lavaged rabbit ALI model. The effect of inhaled nitric oxide on oxidative stress and histopathological and inflammatory lung injury in a saline lavaged rabbit model of acute lung injury was studied by Fioretto et al. They found that inhaled nitric oxide of 5 parts per million attenuated oxidative stress and histopathological and inflammatory lung injury in this model. As with any animal study, the clinical implications and cost-effectiveness of this treatment strategy remains to be determined. This month we publish a review paper on airway pressure release ventilation. We also publish case reports on the use of the NovaLung pumpless extracorporeal lung assist device Hidden diagnosis of tuberculous pleurisy masked by concomitant Pseudomonas orzohabitans bacteremia, congenital pulmonary airway malformation, and utilization of hyperbaric oxygen therapy and induced hypothermia after hydrogen sulfide exposure. Our teaching cases are skin preparation process for the prevention of skin breakdown in patients who are treated with prone positioning, and an atypical presentation of neuroleptic malignant syndrome. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.